fight for the things that you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. Welcome to Between the Lines, a podcast about sports and the law with your host, me, Gabe Feldman, director of the Tulane Sports Law Program and co-director of the Tulane Center for Sport. I'm joined by two heavyweights in the legal community, Chase Strangio and Nina Chaudhry. Chase is deputy director for transgender justice with the ACLU and has been counsel in a number of significant victories on behalf of LGBTQ people over the last several years, including a landmark victory in the U.S. Supreme Court last summer. He was also named to Time Magazine's list of 100 most influential people in the world. Nina is general counsel and senior advisor for education at the National Women's Law Center, where she has focused on fighting sex discrimination in education with a special expertise in Title IX and women's sports. They join me to talk about the legal battles over trans athletes playing sports and how this battle reflects the broader fight for the rights of transgender people in this country. And they help debunk some of the more harmful myths that exist about trans athlete participation in women's sports. Here we go. Welcome, Chase and Nina. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having us. The basic question I want to try to answer by the time we're done today is the issue of trans athletes playing in sports. And the argument that you hear over and over again and that people make over and over again is that allowing trans athletes to play sports will destroy women's sports, among many other things they claim will happen. And in order to get there, particularly for most of the listeners of of this podcast who have more of a sports focus than a transgender rights focus, I think it's important to back up and talk about the basic issues, legal issues around transgender rights. And starting with that sports specific question to me is a little bit about starting asking, how do you get that chandelier to hang on the 30th floor of the skyscraper? Let's focus on the, the foundation of the skyscraper and then we can get up to the chandelier. But there's a lot you need to know before we can get up to that level. So I want to provide the background to the listeners and you two are the perfect people to provide that background, given your experience. And so let me start by asking each of you, and I'll start with you, Chase, to talk a little bit about your background, your expertise, generally in terms of this area, and then we can get into the law and then to the sports aspect of the law. So thanks for having me. And I do think it's important just, you know, to start with the answer and then we'll back up, which is there absolutely will not be a takeover of sports by trans people. We are an incredibly small population. We've been around forever. We've been in sports. There's absolutely no threat that we as trans people pose. And so I think we just need to like get that out there because there's so much confusion. And I think it is important to unpack it. But just in case someone turns this off. I was just... trying to get them to listen to the end. Now you've, <laughs> now you've ruined it. No, because I have a lot of exciting details I... and answers for people that they will hear nowhere else. But but I think, yeah, so in terms of my work, I come at legal advocacy and social justice work from a trans rights, trans justice background, had been working more in a direct legal services context at after law school, and I've been working at the ACLU for the last eight years doing a lot of our trans rights advocacy in the context of state legislative advocacy against attacks on trans people, and then a lot of our affirmative litigation in federal court or some of our affirmative litigation in federal court on behalf of trans people in a variety of contexts, from the prison and jails context to employment to sports and education more broadly. So that is what I do and and where I came from in the work. And Nina and I have worked together a lot in the last two years as sort of this issue around trans people and athletics has become a salient part of the, the, I would say, characterized as an anti-trans discourse that didn't focus on sports, but now is. You did not include, but I will include for you that you were in Time Magazine's 2020 list of the 100 most influential people in the world Period? Is it in the world? Is that it? I mean, that's what that is the title of the list. (laughs) (laughs) I don't endorse the underlying (laughs) actual accuracy of the statement. (laughs) That's impressive. I have, I got an advanced copy. They didn't print it, but at the top 200. (laughs) And I don't want to say, but Nina, you and I may be on there. So (laughs) they don't expand the list a bit. We would, you know, 
I'd be thrilled. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so Dina, if you could uh, give a quick intro and background on yourself. Sure. Um, Really excited to be part of this. I am currently general counsel and senior advisor for education at the National Women's Law Center. I've actually been at the law center for over 20 years, focusing on broadly on sex discrimination issues in education and with sort of a special expertise in Title IX uh, and women's sports and sexual harassment other issues. I I think the last few years, definitely Chase and I have been talking a lot more. I think this issue is not new, but has become a real wedge issue recently. And I will second what Chase said, which is the bottom line is women's sports are thriving and and the problems they have are not because of trans athletes. (laughs) There's a long way to go, but women's sports have not ended because trans folks have been participating for many years now. And I'm, I'm glad you raised that point. We'll come back to that. I, I think a lot of people don't understand the history of the involvement of trans athletes and, and how long, not only the participation has been going on, but the abuse and humiliation and mistreatment and the anti-trans efforts have been going on for, for such a long time. And I've discovered more of that in just doing research for here. And, and before we shift, I, I do want to say that although you're probably one of the 200 most influential people in the world. You are, you're a chai tea lover and I've read your chai tea recipe. And I say that one, because I think it's interesting. And two, because I always want my guests to know that I've done not only research, but next level research. (laughs) That makes me so happy. Yeah. I loved, I'm a tea snob. I fully admit that. And I love making chai, which, you know, is part of my cultural heritage as well. And just a nice comfort thing, especially in these times. <laughs> yeah, I'll use some comfort. Okay, let me turn it over and we'll start with Nina with you on this one, just to give listeners the the background on what one needs to know to understand how these issues will play out in the sports context and, and how they play out more generally and the progression and evolution of rights in this area for trans people. And you both have lived this, but it is remarkable to see how much progress has been made in the courts, but in some cases in, in the legislatures as well, and how much both of you have played a role in that is incredible, both as either lead counsel or just being part of the broader team. And so congratulations on being part of this significant transformation in terms of recognition of trans rights and, and beyond that, obviously. But just to start from the, the beginning-ish, in terms of the Title IX work you've done broadly and and the Supreme Court cases and other cases, and and just starting really with how this has played out from the interpretation of Title VII and Title IX, the Civil Rights Act, and how the the definition of sex plays such a crucial role in all of this. Sure. Title IX was passed in 1972 after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is where we find Title VII. And Title IX prohibits sex discrimination in education programs that receive federal funding. We've worked on Title IX for uh, the Law Center, incidentally, was founded the same year as Title IX. We've worked on it for over 45 years now, the whole lifetime of law. And I think we've seen over the years, the courts were really trying to encompass LGBTQ discrimination into the definition of sex discrimination by reaching out and saying when there was sex stereotyping happening, when people were being treated differently because they weren't conforming to sex stereotypes, especially under Title IX, courts were reaching in and saying that's part of sex discrimination. And we saw that percolating for some time. And then recently, last year, the Supreme Court in the Bostock case, which was a Title VII case, really just held what many of us I know have been saying for years, which is let's just call it straight sex discrimination when you're discriminating against somebody because they're gay or lesbian or transgender. That is inherently discrimination on the basis of sex. And the court finally said that in the Title VII context. And then since then, we have seen some courts, especially in the sort of restroom cases with transgender students, extend the Bostock holding and say, yes, in fact, Title IX as we've said before, covers discrimination on the basis of gender identity. And so I think Bostock really just makes clear what we've been arguing all along, which is when you're talking about sex discrimination, that includes all of these categories. Chase, in terms of the restroom cases, which were for obviously a while, the hot button issue and where a lot of litigation was focused, can you talk a little bit about how those cases played out and the arguments that the 
it depends on the particular case, whether the plaintiffs, the, the cisgender, typically the, the parents groups, the ones who are trying to restrict access to restrooms, how, how those cases played out and the, the sort of the key arguments in those cases? Yeah, so definitely, as Nina said, there's a long history of courts understanding that discrimination against LGBT people is just per se sex discrimination. And I always like to point out that the first marriage case that was decided favorably in Hawaii in 1996 was under a, a sex discrimination theory. It was If you discriminate against someone because they're attracted to someone of the same sex, that is sex discrimination, which of course then triggered the Defense of Marriage Act. And there's a long history of backlash. And I think that's actually Actually, I bring that up for two reasons. The first is to highlight that these arguments are longstanding and have been adopted by courts for decades before the Supreme Court affirmed that in Bostock in this past summer. But then the other reason is because so much of the sort of trajectory of LGBTQ work as a whole and all movement work really has been success in the courts and then various degrees of backlash. And so what we've seen, particularly in the trans context, even though actually trans litigants have been very successful in the federal courts under a sex discrimination theory, even before successes under sexual orientation arguments and even before marriage equality, what we see is the Supreme Court decides Obergefell in 2015, which is the case that brings marriage equality to the entire country. And there's a significant backlash. But because the anti-LGBT forces have pretty much lost their biggest fight at that point, they focus all of their energy on trans people. And we see the emergence in 2016 of this highly well-funded and coordinated effort to demonize trans people. And at that time, it's focused on the restroom. So we have states introducing bills in 2016, largely after Obergefell has decided, trying to bar trans students from restrooms and locker rooms that match their gender identity. This is when HB2 passes in North Carolina. The There's lots of school districts taking these steps as well. And this is also the final year of President Obama's term and of his second term. And he's taking a more trans-inclusive position. And then we're seeing these retrograde reactions in, in many states. And the arguments have been a lot of what we're seeing now in the sports context. Oh, if you will let trans people into women's bathrooms, then they will collapse. Women will be unsafe. Their privacy will be intruded. We might as well have bathrooms for everyone. We're going to see naked men everywhere. Trans women are really men and biologically. And that was a very sort of predominant anti-trans discourse from 2016 to 2018. And then there were two sort of types of cases that were in the courts during this time. One, which you alluded to, was the case, the type of case brought by sort of cisgender individuals or their parents, often their parents or parent groups, challenging schools that were trying to be inclusive of trans people. And these cases had an argument that both under Title IX often and under sort of a privacy theory under the Constitution that the presence of trans people violated the rights of cisgender people. Those cases have been categorically unsuccessful. And we won, we intervene as defendants. We won at the Ninth Circuit. We won at the Third Circuit. The Supreme Court has rejected cert in both. They're incredibly dangerous because they're arguing for a constitutional theory to not be around trans people, but they have been categorically unsuccessful courts have rejected the idea that the presence of trans people is somehow a privacy intrusion into the space of cisgender people or anyone else for that matter. The other type of case are the cases that are now making their way up through the courts again. And these cases are brought by trans students who are excluded from restrooms and locker rooms. And we'll put a pin in sports, but sports as well that sort of align with their gender identity. And the, there's a long history to these cases, too, that you know, they've gone up to the Supreme Court and back down due to changing guidance from the changing administrations. But as Nina mentioned, essentially to bar a person from a restroom just because they're trans is to discriminate against them for being trans. And that is sex discrimination under Title IX, under equal protection. And that courts have largely said that for the, the past several years. We've all been very successful just as we defeated the anti-trans legislation in the restroom context, defeated a bunch of ballot initiatives. We've also been largely successful in the courts. And after Bostock, the 4th and the 11th Circuit, essentially just applying Bostock's reasoning, said it is a violation of equal protection in Title IX to exclude a trans student from a restroom or locker room just because they are trans. So that's the status of that. And the, and again, I think it's important to note because everyone's acting like somehow Biden's executive order changed the nature of Title IX and how it's enforced. None of these courts, these decisions were made under the Trump administration, and they were not in any way dependent on an, ag uh, on an agency interpretation of the law. It is the statute itself that is the source of the protection. And the Fourth Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit decided before Biden was ever elected, let alone in office, that the protections extend to trans students. 
And it's interesting because it was a celebration and it was, I guess, in part, it might have been ceremonial or performative, but on his first day to issue that executive order saying, we want our agencies and schools to follow the law as if that needed to be said. But after the four years we just went through, I suppose that did need to be said. And it sent a, uh, It seemed like it also had a positive effect of sending a, me- a, a message that this is important and this is something that this White House cares about. But I, I want to get to the idea of the backlash, that it might have had a, a negative effect, that this is then rallying up the anti-trans movement even more. And as Chase, you had said, I think, in an interview that the anti-trans movement um, or groups are not nuanced, pretty blunt in terms of their approach, and that you work in more nuanced. And so I, I want to help the listeners understand the nuance to the arguments. I also want to make sure, I've tried to study this issue as much as I can over the last few years, but I, but I certainly recognize there are significant gaps in my knowledge. I, I welcome you, although don't have to take me up on this, but I welcome you. If I use a term that is inappropriate or incorrect or offensive to, to let me know, to educate me and also to educate the, the listeners as well, because I know it, it is, it, it can be some, sometimes a conversation ender because people are afraid they might use the wrong term, so they don't want to engage in the conversation at all. But if I do something like that, if I welcome you, I encourage you to, to let me know. But going back to Bostock for a second, and the yeah, this happened last summer, and there's a lot that's notable about the case and, and the cases that were being decided there and, and Harris Funeral Home. Before we get into the sort of specifics of Bostick, though, can and, and Chase, I'll start with you on this one. But can you talk about how the, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act claims were raised in these cases and also the locker room, the, 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 the bathroom cases? and how those have been handled, because that, that comes up a lot. And I think people sometimes fall back on the religion argument as a defense for either actions or beliefs in this area. Yeah, so I think this is, this is complicated. It was complicated in Bostock for, for a number of reasons. So technically, if the government isn't the one enforcing, then there wouldn't be a RIFRA defense. If you are like Gavin Grimm bringing a case against his school, like there is no, <laughs> like Title IX has a religious exemption within it. And there's obviously other sort of constitutional limitations on our civil rights laws. But when it comes to how these laws protect individuals that it's not, when the government is not enforcing it, then there should be no RIFRA defense. Amy's case was a little more complicated, or that Amy Stevens's case was a little more complicated because it was initially brought by the government. It was the EEOC versus Harris Funeral Homes. And there was, there was a set of religious-based defenses, which were not ultimately raised at the Supreme Court. So it was not part of the case at all, at least in terms of the explicit claims. There were definitely the underlying faith-based objections to things, but that was not part of the doctrine. And Title VII has its own set of exemptions, and they're both judicially created ones and then statutory ones. I think the larger overarching movement to abrogate civil rights protections for LGBT people includes a lot of sort of efforts to undermine civil rights laws in one way or another, uh, either through exemptions saying, oh, you don't have to cover trans people, full stop, or sort of faith-based objections and broader and broader religious exemptions, both statutory proposals for such, and then obviously under the First Amendment. And in the Justice Gorsuch's decision in Bostock, there, there is at the end this question of what is not decided here. And that includes what are the extent of the religious limitations on our civil rights protections as a general matter, even though one, you know, would have hoped that they were already resolved. And then many times in other civil rights contexts that people raised faith-based objections to including people under our civil rights laws. So I think that's very much in the background. I would say, though, that the beyond like religious schools and the way that Title IX's exemption works, there can't, you can't have a religious objection to, it's not like you can't bring a RIFRA defense to an individual class. There are some questions about how it works, but by and large, if we're talking about individual students trying to enforce their rights under the existing civil rights laws, that there's sort of limitations to what types of defenses can be raised. I don't know, Nina, if you want to add, and there's lots of questions already at the Supreme Court about to what extent are our generally applicable laws going to be 
abrogated by the existing doctrine under Smith, which is a prevailing standard under the First Amendment. And there's a case called Fulton that's up at the court. So I think a lot is going to be decided soon. I don't have much to add on that. I was just going to say under Title IX, the religious exemption, we've had some concerns over the years, too, because it's a pretty broad exemption that even though in writing it says that schools can't choose not to follow regulations or things that they claim conflict conflict with their religion unless it's like a controlling tenet of an organization. The actual written text of what the exemption is sounds stricter than it actually is in practice. And really, I think in this last administration, they also opened this big loophole, if you will, in the way that schools can just inform the Department of Education that they are claiming a religious exemption under Title IX. And that's of real concern to us as well, because, again, schools have used that to discriminate against LGBT students, but also pregnant and parenting students, other students, and tried to get out from under Title IX's obligations. Right. And so... Given Bostock and and the other cases that have been decided, is it fair to say that the law is at least fairly well settled in terms of trans rights to use restrooms and just those general access cases? And that there still could be changes in the law and the court could take one of those specific cases. But where we are now, is it fair to say that battleground you, th- those battles have been won? Uh, so, yeah, I think, well, I would say, first of all, it's established that trans yeah. people are protected under existing federal non-discrimination laws that prohibit discrimination based on sex after Vostok. I think it's like any sort of, once you get to the question of coverage, there's lots of applications. And then I would say the application of Bostock to the restroom locker room context has not gone back to the Supreme. I mean, we, Bostock was just decided in June. And we've, I've been at the ACLU for eight years and we've had a Supreme Court case every single one of those years. So I, 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 who knows what will happen, but Gavin, the, one of those for the fourth circuit decision on this question is, you know, a cert, the cert petition in, from the school district is going to be filed in the next two weeks. Although Gavin's 45 years old now, law making change quickly. But yeah, I would say we have won all of those cases. Like I, I think there was one case that was a outlier many years ago, but by and large, there's a consensus in the courts and that it has maintained. And so that's, I think, a pretty well established law that obviously the Supreme Court could disrupt, which we were afraid they were going to do with the Title VII cases, but it should be a straightforward application of Bostock and a consensus in the lower courts. I don't know what you mean if you feel this. No, I was just going to say, I hope it's established. It certainly <laughs> seems to us like it's established, but you never know. And I ask it because I, I think there are still plenty of people who think that is not, that don't realize or don't know that is settled law and think that's still a contested issue, which is a totally separate conversation. I was going to say there are plenty of people who almost 50 years after Title IX was passed in general, name your issue, but we're talking about sports here. They're not in compliance to date. And I get reporters all the time saying to me, why do you think that is? And I was like, "I, I don't know, but there's no excuse. So... Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to note that the courts are very clear on what the law is and that there's, yes, but I think the leading officials in Texas, for example, would disagree and decide that it's not important to follow the law. And I think you can look doing state legislative advocacy. It is incredibly not convincing to tell a state legislature that they're in violation of federal law. That is either exciting to them or of no interest. And so I think it's, it go, you know, cause, so what they're thinking, I don't know. I do think a lot of the general public and that more importantly is unaware of the, the amount of consensus on the nature of legal protections for trans people, which is why when Biden says, I'm going to follow the law and it becomes a controversy, it's so strange because I'm like, he didn't do anything. It was nice, especially after Trump, but he just said, we're going to follow the law. That's it. And so I think that is important to reiterate as much as we can, that if you have a complaint about it, your complaint is with Congress or your complaint is with the Supreme Court. If you want your president to follow the law, as many of these people, I think, do, then that's you're not mad at Biden. You're mad at someone else. On the Bostock decision, were you surprised by either the specific outcome or by the division in the court because as, a, as an outsider to this, seeing Gorsuch the majority and have the 6-3 split that way just generally was a surprise. And then even reading some of the language in the dissents, both from Alito and well, most are, more so from Kavanaugh, I was still surprised by some of the, even the language used in the dissent. But let me ask you the first question first. Were, were you surprised at all either by the breakdown or by the outcome? 
<laughs> we litigated the whole case for Gorsuch. So if we were going to win, it was going to be to yeah. him. It was a ode to Gorsuch and textualism. But I still didn't think we were going to win. When you're briefing a case like that, you're just in despair and stressed and all of the things. I think if we were, I think it was the best possible outcome that we could have imagined in terms of it was briefed a certain way. It was adopted our reasoning in full. I was surprised about the chief. Never thought we would get him. Didn't get him in marriage. And this is statute, but he's not known as a textualist. So it wasn't necessarily, I thought if it was going to be 6-3, it would more likely be Kavanaugh. And based on Kavanaugh's weird question and argument, I thought his dissent made a lot of sense in terms of where, and it was patronizing and irritating. I almost Alito's dissent more. Just hate me to my face. Don't congratulate me on the progress. But that, I'll say that. I was, it was as someone who was in the briefing and worked on it and gave my life to it. I never imagined winning in a lot of ways after Kennedy retired and everything, but I think Gorsuch was the right target. I think it was amazing that we got the chief and yeah, it's like to this day, June 15th will be like one of the best days of my life. I don't know on your end what. I just want to say first, thank you, because I wasn't as involved in the briefing others in my organization were, but as somebody who wasn't as intricately involved in that, but was watching, I was also pleasantly surprised. I I did not think I was in a state of despair in general about the Supreme Court. Yeah, I think the opinion, it just felt like such a vindication again, because I think many of us who have been participating and some more than others, but working on these cases over the years, like we've filed a number of amicus briefs in these bathroom cases and, and we've followed the evolution of the law under Title IX. And it just seemed so obvious that, it, but to get this Supreme Court to say that was honestly shocking. I was just like, well, that's great. And I had actually highlighted on my notes here that portion of Kavanaugh's opinion that was patronizing. So you've, you've already answered that question, but it, it's, but I, I will say that I've had a lot of conversations recently with very conservative people about the trans athletes in sports question. And there's at least the conversation starts with, I will accept, I admit that trans people can identify any way they want as if they had to give permission for that to happen, but that they're not fighting that part of it. They're just fighting the sports part of it, which in some ways I think is a win because at least you're past that first fight and then just onto the Yeah, I guess the question is like, what good is your ability to identify a certain way if the whole world is going to is going to force you not to? And so I think, yes, I do think we're over some threshold hurdles. Sometimes there used to be a no, like you can't even. But I guess the question is like, what does it mean to sort of respect someone's quote unquote to self-determine, but then also use the power of the government to force them back into some sort of either a closet or it's like what then it's just what don't ask, don't tell. You can feel it inside, but you have to go to school and you're assigned sex. I think that's where it feels more like that. So let's then transition into the sports context and into starting with Idaho's law. And Chase, I'll start with you just in terms of what Idaho tried to do and then the legal challenge and why this case, and you've talked a lot about this, and Nina, you have as well, why this case is not just about trans athletes, that this case is about women athletes, women in general. So Chase, I'll start with you, and then Nina, you can jump in. Yeah, so in 2020, what we saw, again, after a lot of the restroom bills were unsuccessful, is all the states that have been proposing restroom bills for years started proposing these bans on trans athletes in sports, focusing by and large, though not all of them, on the regulation of women's and girls' sports. And 2020 had probably around 17 of these bills introduced. The only one that passed was HB 500 in Idaho. Partly, a lot of sessions ended early because of COVID, but we were able to defeat many of them. Idaho's bill, which was essentially a model bill that was drafted by a number of notable conservative organizations, Alliance Defending Freedom, we expect was behind it, ALEC, known for their right-wing state legislative work, and the Heritage Foundation, and we're shopping around these bills to state lawmakers around the country. And the the bills essentially did three main things. They created a mechanism to bar women and girls who are trans from women's sports in high school and college, and many girls who are intersex. They created a definition of sex of women, basically of who is a quote unquote biological woman or who is a woman for purposes of the category that was incredibly restrictive, focusing on three things, genetics, which I which means chromosomes, which means the X or XY. It, doesn't, it just says genetics, but on reproductive anatomy, so internal reproductive anatomy, and on endogenous testosterone. 
So those are the three criteria that one measures to determine one's femaleness under the law. So that's the, the third, the second thing it did. Then the third thing the law does, which is perhaps the thing that is most egregious to the largest number of people, is it set up what is under the law called a dispute essentially resolution procedure that anyone can dispute the sex of a female athlete or an athlete in women's sports. And in order to prove that you are a female, quote, female for purposes of women and girls athletics, you have to prove your femaleness, again, like it's, it's relatively unclear by coming forth, proving that you either have XX chromosomes, that you have internal reproductive anatomy consistent with what we consider to be female or endogenous testosterone levels at a certain level, which again, we don't actually measure endogenous hormones because that there's lots of things that, that, that we have pediatric endocrinology experts in the case that are like, these, none of these things are things that we measure. And so those are the things that it did. And we sued the ACLU along with Legal Voice and the law firm of Cooley LLP sued Idaho under with several theories that it violated equal protection based on sex discrimination and trans status discrimination, violated Title IX, and also infringed the privacy rights of all athletes in women's sports by imposing upon athletes in women's sports and not men's sports, this burdensome procedure whereby your sex could be disputed at any time and you would have to have some sort of testing to prove your womanhood or femaleness or whatever the law sort of categorizes it as. And we had one cisgender plaintiff and one transgender plaintiff. And ultimately the law was enjoined and is currently on appeal at the Ninth Circuit. What's interesting is I think most people who were following the case knew about the trans plaintiff, but not the cisgender plaintiff. And the cisgender plaintiff turns this into, uh, or I think makes it clear why this is a broader issue. And it's not, if you want to say, I only care about this if I'm trans, this is not just impacting trans people. This can infringe on women's rights more broadly. And that the cisgender athlete's complaint was that she might get labeled or, or questioned as whether or not she was actually a woman and then have to go through this procedure, this invasive procedure. And, and as I understand it, the law set up something where you could basically challenge anyone, whether it's in good faith or not, and then require them to go through this procedure. And so this could impact anyone who is trying to participate in, in women's athletics. Nina, can you talk a little bit about that in terms of the intersection of kind of your work and also then in the LGBTQ work and how this kind of comes together as just as really one issue or just multiple sides of one issue. Yeah, this is something we've been flagging for a while now, right? That these laws are obviously extremely harmful for trans girls and trans individuals in general. This one was targeted as many of them are, I think, against trans girls. But because the law allowed, you know, people to question anybody to question any woman or girl. It affects any, also cis women and girls who don't conform to sex stereotypes. And in particular, one of the things we highlighted in our brief is how these laws will disproportionately harm black and brown women and girls. In particular, black women are routinely targeted, shamed um, for not conforming to white feminine expectations and stereotypes. Look at Serena Williams. <laughs> she has been drug tested more than anybody in tennis. She has been just the, the subject of horrible racist narratives saying that she's male or masculine, just awful things. And these laws are going to fuel more of that. So I think that was something that we really focused on in our brief, because I think that's often also missing from a lot of the discussion that we hear. And so, yeah, we wanted to make that clear that this is going to hurt everybody. And we also talked about intersex athletes as well in the brief. Right. Yeah. And the invasiveness and that the, the process of challenging yeah. whether someone is a woman or not, I'm just doing additional research, I'm sure you are both very familiar with this, but I imagine most people are not. The history of it in the 1936 Olympics, when there were... Yep. two runners, two female runners, and they were both accused of being men. And yeah. the, just the sort of humiliation about it and, and the story that, that I hadn't heard until more recently read about was that the, I'm forgetting her name now, but the, the athlete who won the gold medal was hugged and groped by Hitler. And Hitler said something to the effect of, we could use people like you on our side or, or you have the ideal body type. And it's just oh. all of it. It's just so... Horrifying. And this is 1936, and it obviously continued to get worse in terms of how women were treated. But 
whether someone was trans or not and intersex or not, just they said, you look too much like a man or you don't conform to our stereotype of a woman. And not only in terms of athletic participation, but just, just the anti-trans laws in general and, and how this is the, the more I, I studied it, the less it became a sports issue, and the more it became just an anti-trans issue again. And so, Chase, can you talk about that a, a little bit just in the context of the argument that is made primarily, I think, to try to restrict the ability of trans women in particular to participate in women's sports is that it will be unfair competitively to what the complaints refer to as biological women that this is going to lead to a situation where everybody on the podium, everybody getting an athletic scholarship, everybody in the WNBA, everybody on the LPGA is going to be a trans athlete because they just have these natural advantages because they were, you know, as it's described, born as men. And there's obviously an easy response to that is this is not a new issue. And whether it's Renee Richards or others who have participated in sports, you can look, there are not, these sports are not being dominated by trans women. And in fact, they're not even being won at any level by trans women. They're not getting the scholarships. They're not making it to the Olympics. They're not winning medals. They're not taking over, I think for lots of reasons, but can Chase, can you talk a little bit about some of sort of the specific reasons in terms of both, both science and then just maybe the more sort of legal political response to that argument that this is going to destroy women's sports. Yeah, no. So there's so many ways to look at this. And this is just truly the morphed attack that was in the restrooms. It's the same thing. It's, oh, if you let trans women in, then the category will have no meaning, which I will say is not that different from saying if you let gay people get married, then the institution will have no meaning. This is a very common argument. If you desegregate, it will create this is the reaction to challenging power. Always the things that we understand to be true will no longer be true and that will be scary. That's what's going on here. But as trans women and girls have been participating in women's sports for decades, if not longer, and we just have not seen the categorical takeover. And in fact, no trans person, no trans woman has ever qualified for the Olympics, let alone won a medal. Currently in all of the rhetoric around trans people taking over sports in the United States, nobody can point to a single competitive trans girl athlete at the high school or collegiate level currently competing in sports in the U.S. The Out of the tens and thousands, if not hundreds and thousands of athletes, zero. So again, we're talking about a made up thing. I think that the other thing is that people will trot out these quote ostensible sort of categorically true, typical performance differences between boys and girls, between men and women, and then just apply them to trans women. Like say, oh, trans women are the equivalent to non-trans boys. And there's so many reasons why that's not true. From the biggest picture reason, and one of the reasons why we don't see trans people taking over anywhere or even participating is because there is so much discrimination against trans people. So if you're a trans girl in middle school, your experience, I will guarantee you, is very different than your cisgender male counterparts. So there's already the toll of the experience of discrimination and the fact that nobody wants you, not nobody, but like in the world, it feels like nobody wants you. And so there's the discrimination aspect. The other thing that I think people have to understand is that many young trans people are taking some sort of medical intervention. Should they have to? No. But a lot of people do have to as part of their medical treatment, and hopefully they have access to it. In which case, in terms of hormone levels, if you're a trans girl, so if you're assigned male at birth, a transition at a young age and never go through your endogenous, meaning your sort of what is considered to be your natural puberty, puberty blockers will stop that puberty from initiating. You will never have the influx of testosterone that people commonly associate with a male typical puberty, meaning none of the science and data that we think of that's relevant to typical performance differences between boys and girls post-puberty and men and women applies to this subset of trans people. None of them. They are equivalent to individuals with CIS, which is complete androgen insensitivity syndrome, which is when your body doesn't process testosterone, but you have XY chromosomes. And at the Olympic level, it was in this in the horrible like 
periods of sex testing, it was determined that there was no, even when we're talking about the most elite sports where you're regulating like down to an overly specific amount, that anyone who has this condition where your body doesn't process the testosterone that you categorically compete in the women's category, no question. So any trans girl with XY chromosomes, there's no advantage that even under the science that's being brought out by opponents of trans participation would have any of that testosterone. And the sad irony is that as states are trying to prevent trans people from getting access to Exactly. So this is all happening under a rubric where people are simultaneously in almost every state trying to both ban trans youth saying you always have this advantage and then say also we're going to make it a crime for you to get health care, which again, I think is why it's important to remember that this is part of a larger project targeting trans people and transness and is not in fact about sports. And again, we know it's not about sports because there are... It's close to zero people playing sports in any of these states. No one can point to any trans athletes. It's just a sort of hyper threat of the idea. But I want to go back to something Nina said, which I think is incredibly important, is that all anti-trans policies and laws are at their core part of a patriarchal anti-woman project and regulating women's bodies first and foremost. And I think whenever I post about anything related to trans athletes and sports online, I get a million replies with just like pictures of people who I I assume people think to be trans women who are just tall or strong and be like, see, this is so unfair. But that's the very thing that women, that athletes in women's sports always have to deal with. The idea that they're subject to this policing of their bodies, particularly brown and black women. If really what we're scared of are tall women in sports or strong women in sports, what we're opening the door to is just the over-policing of women's bodies in sports. Brittany Griner is 6'9". And, and there, you know, it's like, this is not, and, and my clients in Connecticut who are trans runners, who are the people being trotted out as the greatest threat to sport are 5'6". And our bodies are so variable. And it just is not true that it's this simple, oh, there's this one tr- tall trans woman and therefore sports are gonna collapse. No, you're like a huge WWE fan. The variation in the bodies is... Absolutely. And I also, I just, I want to say that so many of these proposals that we're seeing, they're targeting K through 12 kids. So first of all, as we've been saying, this is not new. Trans kids have been playing athletes. Trans athletes have been playing on teams forever. So we have athletic associations at the high school level, right, in 19 states that have inclusive policies that allow all athletes from K through 12 to play for the team that reflects their gender identity. So this has been happening for a long time, but also at bottom, this is about kids wanting to play and trans individuals are already subjected to all kinds of harassment students in school. They're much more likely to suffer violent harassment, violence, thoughts of suicide, all of these things. And they just want to play like anybody else. So they want to be on a team because that is where you feel included. That's where you learn from, frankly, from people who don't look like you, who are different than you. You're all, you're exposed to so much being part of a sports team. I played basketball in high school. I wasn't very good, but that was one of the most formative experiences of my life. And I think I think that it's just so heartbreaking that people are trying to, especially at the K-12 level, you can argue there might be differences at the Olympic level where you're talking about super elite competition. And even the NCAA has had a rule in place for over a decade with no real issues. But these laws like Idaho and, and these bans and the backlash is really coming at the K-12 level where I just, kids want to play, let them play. We're essentially ho- holding like middle school athletes to a stricter standard than Olympians. We're saying you're banned altogether. Like you don't get to play at all. It's just think about what that does when you're already going through puberty. It's like, God, who like as an adult, you're like, thank God I'm through this horrible time. But we're putting this on kids who are navigating. And right now they're navigating a pandemic. They're navigating their schools, maybe not even being open. Their athletic season's already in peril because of the fact that we're dealing with a global pandemic. And yet lawmakers are deciding that the single most important thing they can do is try to ban trans kids from sports. The message is so harmful. And that's what makes the Idaho bill so shocking that it it was signed into law in in end of March, 2020. It's right as the pandemic was, I think it was just one of the scariest times in all of our lives. And and as you said, state lawmakers said, not only should we continue to to meet, but we should make sure we move forward with this law because that's going to protect all of us. And just Two other other notes on that. Abigail Schreier, who just... She loves me. 
Yes. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And I'm sure you love her. But she is the author of, among other things, Irreversible Damage, the Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. And she wrote a lengthy, I think it was an op-ed, about how allowing trans women to participate will destroy women's sports. And I think a lot of her language and and arguments have been co-opted and are now being trotted out there as talking points for the anti-trans and anti-trans in sports, including saying basically that there'd be no Flojo, there'd be no Serena Williams, that Allison Felix wouldn't be able to compete because high school men are faster than she is, and that Kavanaugh and like lots of others, that we want them to participate and be welcome, but they should be in their own category. And just the parallels with with sort of the gender neutral bathrooms and, and just this is all seems like this is the same set of arguments over and over again, where the goal is, Chase, as you said, it's not about competitive equity. It's not about protecting women or girls. And a lot of these folks who are anti-trans are also anti-women. It's not like they are in the, the rest of their time trying to protect women's rights. Now, there are some obviously feminist groups that are anti-trans, but the point you made about this is not happening, this is happening at K through 12 and the Olympics and the NCAA and professional sports leagues do allow transgender women to participate. So just from the state perspective, though, the Idaho law just seems outrageously and egregiously wrong under the law and and socially and morally and, and all of that. But what would you say, because there's different states that have different approaches. What From Nina, I'll start with you. What do you think is the right approach to participation of transgender athletes in, in sports? And again, the issue has been mostly around trans women, but there obviously are trans men who are, are dealing with similar issues and certainly similar mental health issues. But as a, in terms of the policy, is there a, a single right approach that you would recommend for states? We have supported the states that have said that students should be able to participate consistent with their gender identity, period. So again, we're talking about kids. I don't, we don't support proposals uh, that we've seen out there about separate championships or teams, or I think that would be a violation of Title IX in the constitution. And also just when you think about, again, the whole point is inclusion, saying that, oh, you could have separate teams or separate championships. And that's just ridiculous and harmful and dangerous. And for all the reasons we've talked about, I think, again, will affect, of course, in a very harmful way, transgender students, but all girls and women, because then we're policing all these bodies. And at ages where, yeah, the last thing they want is to have to be subjected to a gynecological exam because somebody decided you don't look female enough. So yeah, that would be our policy, ideal policy. And that's what we've supported especially at K-12. Yeah, and then Chase, for you and, and for, for both of you, the, the policies that are out there, either at the NCAA or other levels, that require treatment for a certain period of time, where do, where do you personally or, or organizationally fall out on, on those, which are obviously better than the Idaho policy, but are more restrictive than just the gender you identify? One quick thing I want to say, since you brought up Abigail Schreier and I can't leave it. So this idea that there would be no Serena Williams or no Florence Flojo and no elite, there were, they already exist in the context of trans athletes. Like this, again, like it's a completely a, you know, counterfactual argument. Trans athletes have been competing and Serena is still Serena and it's not. So we have to just be accountable to like how, what has actually been the story. And I think Abigail is the perfect example of someone who initially her whole rhetoric is about the dangers of medical transition for young kids. And that's what this horrible book she writes is about, this idea that all trans masculine people are really our daughters and need protecting, which, by the way, the whole like protecting our women and girls is a long history of deeply sexist and racist ways of enforcing state power over the bodies of some and not others. But all that to say, it started there. And then all of a sudden now it's about sports. So again, it's this idea that we there's something deeply threatening about trans people that but trans people have we've been here, we've been in sports. Renee Richards far preceded all of those other athletes. So it's, it's Serena Williams became Serena Williams in the context of trans inclusion. I think we should be clear about that. Yeah, in no, terms, I'm glad you raised yeah. that. That's right. I'm glad you raised that. And it's also, it's amazing to me that it's like that Allison Felix uh, comparison they do. And then it's the Connecticut athletes. Yeah. Like, Look what happened in Connecticut. Like, what? Two athletes 
And two athletes who, by the way, were so, they, who, uh, two things about, these are my clients and I love them and they're incredible and they worked so hard. Like they are hardcore athletes who trained every day and they were still nationally speaking in the middle <laughs> and, and no one followed the story. They went, one of them went to nationals and came in literally 15th in her qualifiers, not ever making it to the semis or the finals. So again, it's like the story trails off at the success. And then you don't see the larger picture of the many cis girls who are beating them. And by the way, both of the individuals who sued Connecticut to block them are now competing in division one track programs. And our clients have quit track altogether and weren't recruited because they still face discrimination. So I think we have to be realistic about the practical realities. I think when it's something like the NCAA rule or something where you're talking about adults, the stakes are different. And when you're talking about K through 12, the kids who aren't going to get treatment are the kids who don't have access to financial resources and don't have supportive families. So if you impose a rule around medical care on youth, then you're essentially punishing the youth who are already being punished at home or who are being discriminated against because they're poor or, or don't have access to health insurance. And so that's just an untenable situation as far as I'm concerned. When it comes to the NCAA rule, I think ideally there are reasons why we wouldn't want such a rule. I have to tell you, I've never met a trans athlete in college who hasn't already met the NCAA standards. Because when you're talking about individuals who are participating in sex-specific contexts, many of them are undergoing or have undergone medical transition for a long time, have been existing in space or want to comfortably exist in the space. So even if I have some theoretical objections to it in terms of litigation or any like types of challenge, there's no one injured by it, as far as I know, in terms of the practical application. And so I think we're not, it's working in the sense that if to the extent people are concerned about testosterone and circulating testosterone, not endogenous testosterone, which these laws are about because no one actually cares about that or should. But then I think that the NCAA rule is in place, has been for 10 years. And we've just seen there's one or two. There's one or two runners that have been good in, a, in 10 years. And that idea that represents a categorical takeover of sports is I frankly laughable, but also a reflection of the just bias that's animating this. And then, and just a last note on, on that, there, there really is a perception among a lot of people that just there were the fear that there would be trans people or people pretending to be trans so they can get access to the, uh, another bathroom and that they were waiting in the corner to be able to see something in the bathroom, that there's this perception that there are people who are willing and will become trans so that they can participate in women's sports. That you've got a, a man who is a good athlete and decides, you know what, I want to win a gold medal, so I'm going to um, become a trans woman, and then I'm going to dominate. And, and that there are these sort of the trans people hiding in the corners, waiting to take over bathrooms and athletic events. And it's, I, I just can't imagine how trans people feel about that sort of perception. And it, you know, goes to what everything you've both been saying, that this is about just anti-trans. This is not about your fear of sports or your fear of privacy in the bathroom. And just the last note, I know I've kept you guys longer than I said, but the ones where it seems clear to me that it is about anti-trans are the new are the healthcare laws that are now being introduced and how restrictive they are, where we could say that the sports issues were about protecting sports and protecting competition and protecting women, but you can't say any of that about the healthcare laws. There, I, I imagine, you know, I'm not imagine, but I know the argument is, well, we need to protect these children. And we need to protect their bodies and that this may be a phase they're going through and that they shouldn't make such consequential decisions early on. But the fact that some of these laws wouldn't allow this medical treatment or, or medical care until they're 21, is this, again, are these laws just being animated by the same thing that's been animating all these other laws that this is part of the backlash and trying everything that they can, whether it's through the, you know, the ADF or, or through ALEC or, or other groups that are out there, that they they want to defeat trans people, and this is the another avenue to do it. Is, is that what we're seeing? Yeah, I think there's a deeply, we're seeing it, it's coinciding with this like rise in anti-trans rhetoric coming out of the UK and the US, funded in large part by the Christian, but also being leveraged in the public discourse by a lot of sort of pseudo intellectuals who are staking their name and career on this set of ideologies. I think 
we're talking though about, yeah, a lot of these laws would make it a felony punishable by life in prison to treat trans youth up to the age of 21. So 21, so can you, it's not about young children when you're talking about 21, first of all. And second of all, they, all the laws have an exception for non-consensual surgeries on intersex infants who those surgeries are known to have harmful consequences and those are infants. So it's not even about consent. It's about normalizing bodies in a certain way, consistent with what is seen to be aligned with what we want people to have their bodies look like when based on understandings of maleness and femaleness. We see that in the healthcare laws too. I think also speaking to this idea of the mythic person who's going to pretend to be trans, that was the huge part of the, the restroom discourse. Even the other side admitted that they made it up entirely, but it's just, it's also in addition to being just deeply offensive, who like, no, I love being trans, but who would just take this on to win? It is a nightmare situation that we're dealing with in terms of the amount of discrimination, particularly for trans femme people, particularly to trans femme people of color with rates of violence and discrimination. But even if you take the most, what is seen to be the most affirming policy like Connecticut, which allows participation in sports consistent with gender identity, you can't just walk in and be like, I'm trans. You actually, even that policy, it's like you have to have consistent identification in your school records. You can only, so you'd have to then also be, it would have to be quite a con. And at that point, either you are trans and you just whatever, or this is never going to happen. And I think just being realistic, it's like there is no person waiting to win a medal who's going to undergo the pain and scrutiny and trauma of all this. That is just at its core an anti-trans argument. It was proposed in the restroom context, it's proposed in the locker room context, and it's now proposed here. And it's just ridiculous. You've heard it a million times too. Yeah, I was going to say it reminds me of things that people say about survivors, sexual assault survivors coming forward and lying and suing people. And I, I always say, who would put themselves through that? The retaliation, the like shaming, the blaming, it's ridiculous. Nobody's making up this stuff. And yeah, I think I had another point and I completely forgot. <laughs> Sorry. Let me, so one last point and then a, a final question. But I, I think this is one of your in one of your briefs you wrote, but it was interesting that people now seem to be falling, some people seem to be falling back and look, I'm not discriminating against men or women, I'm just discriminating against someone who was a man and, and now is becoming a woman. And the way that I, I think it was a district court judge had put it, that would be akin to saying, I'm not discriminating against someone who's Christian or Jewish, I'm just discriminating against someone who was Christian and then became Jewish. That it's the converted Jew or the converted Christian, that's okay somehow which would be laughed at, and yet it's somehow seen as a legitimate argument in, in this context. But last thing I want to just ask you both, and, and you, you both talked about this, but given that it's a, this is obviously a constant battle on many of the issues you're working on, and Chase, I've been following your tracker and this sort of, here's a horrible thing that's been introduced today, here's a horrible bill, a horrible statement that's been made, and I forget who it was Fox, someone on Fox News butchering this discussion, but the advocacy in this area for those who are not involved professionally in it, but are supportive of it and, and want to help, what would you recommend? I'll start with Nina and then go to Chase in terms of people listening or just people, people in general to make a difference either at the, the state level or the national level or what have you seen has been not only effective, but has been something that has kind of lasted? That's not a, yeah, I'll tweet one thing or I'll go to one walk or one rally that has actually been sustainable and effective. Yikes, that's a tough question. Um, I, I will just say, and this is not at all an answer to that very deep question, but that people can certainly follow our lists and sign up for chases and ACLU's things because when there are cases, we do need people to, some organizations to sign on, individuals to sign on. I think we need everybody to frankly talk to people they know, people in their family, like try to educate people because I honestly, I think so much of this is just ignorance, fear, not really understanding the issues, not maybe having met a trans person. And so I think the more we can talk about these issues with our kids, with our friends, with our families, the, the more maybe we can make some change at a small level. The education piece is, is where I've obviously tried to, well, not obviously, but I try to focus on as an educator. And this may be an old stat, but I'm sure you both heard it, that people, I think, in this country were surveyed and asked, how many people have seen a ghost versus how many people have met a trans person? And more people indicated that they've seen a ghost than had met a trans person. Um, and just how meaningful and powerful it is to meet someone who is trans and to get a better understanding of that they're not 
the boogie person in the corner and all of the challenges that trans people face in terms of the discrimination and the mental health issues and the elevated levels of suicide and bullying. But sorry, Chase, go ahead. You were. Yeah, no, I mean, so I think it is, it's really hard. Like with any movement, it's like, how do we affect change? And we need to have leveraging everything at all times. We need the people who are litigating. We need the people who are advocating in the legislature, who are making art, who are on TV, who are talking to their families and friends, who are organizing. It's all part of how we make change in the long run. I would say, on that, the, the ghost statistic is raised in this film, in the film Disclosure on Netflix, which I would highly recommend seeing because it's a film that traces the history of representation of trans people in Hollywood, in film and television over the last hundred years. And why I think it's so important is because it highlights for us how, yes, people maybe think they haven't been thinking about these issues, but have been fed stereotypes and notions and have internalized them. We all have, I have. And it was actually, I worked on the film Disclosure on that, but, but I think that it's been an incredibly profound film for people to see because it goes through like really old footage that people have internalized, but then things like uh, The Crying Game or Ace Ventura, which have huge transphobic storylines that you like maybe saw and didn't think about at the time. Silence of the Lambs or all of the Jerry Springer episodes. And so how much were you internalizing and not realizing? And then how much work does it do, does it require to unpack all of that? And so I do think, go watch Disclosures. on Netflix. It's on Netflix. It's so many people have Netflix. If you, and then sit with that and think, God, what have I thought about? And how do I unpack that? And then also, I like to challenge myself and others. If you see a pregnant person, don't ask them if they're having a boy or a girl. Don't organize your entire life around sex categories before you even ask another meaningful question. Because I think we're entrenching these categories in ways that are actually harmful for everyone. And in some ways, it's get like, I'm 38. When I was a kid, I think there was less toys and clothes that were organized around like incredibly binary productions of sex in some ways. Like you had Lego and overalls and things that were a little more sort of neutral. And now we're, there's a backlash and we're seeing there's like boys clothes and girls clothes. And here's the card for your five-year-old girl and your card. For, it's like, or your two-year-olds. Who, like your kid doesn't, it's going to eat the cart. Does it matter if it has a train or, and girls like trains. It's just like, think about all of the ways that we move, we're not moving the ball forward. And so I think there's like the, looking at your trans, internalized anti-trans narratives through things like disclosure, but also challenging yourself in your life to think, well, is this necessary? Does the, does the bottle brush need to be pink or blue? Like really? And then, and so those are some of the things that I think if we ask ourselves these questions, I think we're going to have a more creative and imaginative future. Thank you to both of you. That's great advice. And I always love it when my homework is to watch a movie. That's, that's better. <laughs> yeah. If you watch it, let me know what you think. I think it's really powerful. Thank you both. This was great and Thank really you. informative and, and inspirational. Thank you for all the great work you've been doing and continue to do and be safe, be well. Um, when we're through all this, try to get you down to two lanes so we can do this. Yeah, I love New Orleans, so I'll be there. <laughs> all right. Thank Bye. you, Bye. And when I'm sometimes asked, when will there be enough? And I say, when there are nine. <laughs>